Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. Today here with me is Mike Volpe. Mike is one of the best known VCs, joined Index Ventures in 2009 to help establish the firm's San Francisco office. Mike invests primarily in infrastructure, open source, and artificial intelligence companies. He's currently on the boards of Aurora, Cockroach Labs, Confluent, Elastic, Kong, Sonos, Starburst, Wealthfront, and of course, my own company, Covariant. He was also previously a director at Blue Bottle Coffee, Hortonworks, and Zwara. Before joining Index, Mike held several executive positions, including Chief Strategy Officer and SVP General Manager of Cisco's routing business. Because he has been involved in the funding of some of the biggest AI companies on the planet today, he arguably knows more about the business of AI and how to bring it in the real world more than anybody else. So happy to have you here with me to talk about the increasingly big business of AI. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Peter. I've thoroughly enjoyed your podcast to date, so it's a privilege to be here with you. Well, it's so nice to have you on, and it's fun to see you in a, in a different format. Normally, we meet in uh, Covariant board meetings, right? And now uh, we're having a podcast, very different setting. So one of the things that I maybe w- w- would like to learn more about first from you is a lot of people listen to the podcast for learning about AI, and we're going to get to AI uh, a bit later. But I don't think too many people are super familiar with venture capital and what does a venture capitalist do? What keeps you occupied? It's a funny job, venture capital. You know, the gist of what we do is to scour the earth for the best founders and entrepreneurs that are working on extraordinary technology and are intending to commercialize it. We provide them with some capital, money, and we provide them with some experience on how to build a business. And we try to help them as much as possible in the journey to take something that is tiny, small, maybe initially a little bit insignificant, and turn it into you know, the next Google and Facebook to be, in some sense, assistance for that journey. You know, most people think you know, venture capital, my job is to invest. And I'd say you know, something like 10% of our time is actually investing. of our time is actually trying to help companies grow and mature. At the heart of it, that's really what we do. Now, I've, of course, experienced that myself with Covariant and and everything you do to help us grow. To circle back to the investing part for a moment, though, before we get into growing, um, there's a kind of notorious list, the Midas list, published by Forbes every year. And you're featured on that list frequently. And for people who don't know, this list is essentially listing the venture capitalists who have had the most successful exits in some sense, like investing capital and what does it become? What does that capital become? And so it, ultimately, you do get measured by that, it seems, in, in, in some way or other. I wonder how, how does that affect your, your thinking? I mean, even though you want to build companies, you are still ultimately judged by the success of the money you put in, right? I think it's true, Peter, but, but I would say... There's a lot of things that you do in life as a professional and maybe as an individual where people want to measure you over the output, but the thing that you actually control is the input. And that's kind of how I view my profession as well, which is ultimately, yes, we have to return capital to our investors and that's part of the job. But if I do the input part of my job well, the output will happen. That's sort of my general core belief system. I think the important thing is, you know, I 
try to find the best possible companies to invest in. That is a big part of the job is discovering that. And we can talk about what we try to look for in that context in a second, but you discover those. And in some ways you're a partner to those people that are building the business. And if those folks, if the founders, the executives of the company believe that you've done a good job for them, that's probably the one thing that you can most measure. That's the thing I care most about is when a CEO calls me after three years that we've been working together and says, thank you, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. That to me is my measure of success. And then, you know, sometimes you get lucky and you get a company that's worth $20 billion and sometimes it's worth a little less, but you can't always control that. What you can control is the value that you add to the companies that you work with. Now, what you described there is actually in some sense, exactly how we met, because I remember sitting down with Chris Ermson in a nice restaurant over in, in Mountain View a couple of years ago now, I think exactly two years ago now, sitting down with Chris, just chatting. I mean, he's the founder of Aurora self-driving car company, and he's, he's leading the, the, the space there. And I'm curious, you know, what is he thinking about, you know, his board and his investors and, you know, Mike Volpe, if you've never met him, he's He's so, so helpful in, in every possible way, strategic, tactical, and um, you should meet him. And that, that's, our, that's the start of our connection right there, the CEO who is really happy with, with your involvement. Yeah. And, and, you know, Peter, the best connections I get to all the companies that I invested almost always come from another CEO introducing me to the new founder. You know, and I know that there's a company that we can't talk about yet because we haven't announced it, but that we invested that you introduced us to. So it, it's this sort of uh, transitive journey of you know, great, great founders telling us about all the other great founders that they know and, 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 uh, and pursuing that path. Venture investing is, is not where you started. I'm really intrigued by your upbringing actually. Um, and I'm curious if you can say a bit more about that because I understand it. You grew up in Italy for a very brief time, and then moved to Japan. Can you say a little bit about that journey and how it's affected where you are today? Yeah, big impact on my life. So, you know, as I like to tell people, I, I was born an ordinary Italian child in Milan. And, you know, little kid played soccer in the backyard. My father was an adventurous type, and uh, he decided that he wanted our family to experience different parts of the world. He worked for a bank in Italy. He asked for a transfer and they moved him to Tokyo in the early 70s. I went to Tokyo, I think I was six years old or something like that, and basically did all of my education, my, my initial education, primary, middle, and high school. I did it in Tokyo at an international school there. And then, you know, I was this kid that liked science and math. So, you know, if you like science and math, you go to the US and I moved to the US. And from then on, there's a tech journey that, that takes me to where I am today. You know, obviously the experience and, you know, this is Tokyo in the 1970s, not Tokyo today. So not exactly as international as it is. It would be unfair for, to say that I felt like a minority because I wasn't, but it's fair to say that there weren't many that looked like me. It's fair to say that I got thrust at an early age into a range of very different cultures because, uh, you know, obviously the surrounding world was Japan. In my school, it's an international school largely taught on the US curriculum. And we had kids that were, you know, from Africa, from Latin America, from China, from Japan, from the US everywhere. And then at home, you know, we had a very strict Italian upbringing, you know, my parents refused to speak to me in a language other than Italian, which, you know, thankfully, as a result, I still speak today. I had friends in my neighborhood that, you know, I learned to speak Japanese with. 
So, you know, what all these things I think taught me ultimately was to figure out how to connect with very different people in different ways. Each person that you meet, they have different interests, different cultural nuances, different passions, different value systems. My upbringing taught me to appreciate people where they are and to not judge by any one of the filters that you're put on. You know, even I, you know, especially at the time, I had sort of a Japanese filter, an Americanized filter, an Italian filter. And so, you know, you start to say, well, you know, this person's quiet, for example, because most Japanese are relatively introverted. And you sort of look at the situation and say, like, actually not, that they're actually normal. I'm a little too extroverted, right? So you, you sort of eliminate filters of people. And that in my professional life later on has enabled me to work with the most amazing people, in some cases, very, very different than me. But it's really, really helped me because I feel like I can actually connect with a wide range of different people who are doing fascinating things these days. Now, when you left Japan, you went to Stanford. Was that a, an obvious choice at the time? Um, you said coming to the US for science engineering was obvious, but then specifically Stanford, mechanical engineering, was that the natural choice? Well, no, I mean, I was pretty good at, at school. So I got accepted into a lot of places. I went to the Cambridge area to visit one of, one of the universities there in the middle of winter. And I was like, and then like three weeks later, I went to Stanford to visit with my mom. And it was like, oh, that's kind of obvious. I know what I'm doing. I think I could have, my education was largely in English. I figured I wanted to go to an English speaking system. I could have gone to the UK, but it's complicated to, at the time, especially to get it to the admission construct. So it was pretty obvious that I was going to go to the US and I applied to a bunch of schools and, you know, the weather was nice. The campus was beautiful. I didn't know that I was going to be a mechanical engineer. I thought I was going to be an engineer of some variety. I also liked the sciences. So I thought maybe it'd be a, chem a chemistry major, took a bunch of chemistry classes, ended up landing a mechanical. But it was pretty obvious that I'd come to the U.S. Obviously, in the 80s, when I went to Stanford, it was probably not quite as, uh, as, as famous as it is today. I did know what I was doing in the sense that I realized that that institution would open up a lot of possibilities and opportunities for me. So that was relatively premeditated. How do you decide what to do after Stanford? Well, I'm pretty straightforward. I was a mechanical engineer. I uh, did what mechanical engineers do, which is to design little mechanical objects of one variety of another. I had a few internships doing that. Uh, I ended up deciding to get a job at uh, HP, which at the time was a highly regarded, maybe it still is, maybe slightly less, but it was a highly regarded company. They hired a lot of mechanical engineers to do things. So I went to be a mechanical engineer. The life of the everyday mechanical engineer involves a lot of time in front of CAD stations, sort of designing and drawing things. I have always had a very kind of like a slightly ADHD mind, and I found it difficult to do that every day. And, you know, I kept asking questions about why are we doing this? How does this impact the business and whatnot? And thankfully, I had a very nice manager. He was my boss when I was a mechanical engineer. And he said, you know what? I don't think you're like all these other engineers and maybe you should go get an MBA. I think that's probably better for you, which I don't know if he was trying to fire me or, or, or he was giving me career advice. Anyway, so he wrote me a very nice recommendation. And so I went back and I did get an MBA. And that was a, a very useful moment for me because it allowed me to kind of, I was sort of on a track, right? I was taking my engineering classes, my thermodynamics, my design classes, my control system classes, working on that stuff. And the MBA was a nice moment for me to pause and say, what am I like? What do I like? What am I good at? And how do I find something that I'm passionate about 
And, you know, the obvious conclusion was that I like to look at lots of different things. And I like to be on the cutting edge of technology, even though I don't think I'm really cut out to be an engineer per se, because I don't really have the patience that I think is, is, is requisite for a really good engineer. So, and then from then on, I ended up at Cisco. Now at Cisco, as I understand it, you, uh, you worked away pretty much all the way to the top, uh, leading a lot of the corporate strategy. Can you say a bit more about that? The kind of interesting story there that maybe relates to some of the AI stuff later is I graduated from my, uh, the MBA program in uh, 1994. And 94 is kind of a seminal year in that what was then Mosaic Communications, later renamed Netscape, launched its web server and browser. I'd always played around with computers a lot. I, I you know, programmed in various languages. I took a bunch of CS classes also when I was an undergrad. So uh, a friend of mine told me about this and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Uh, you know, I'd actually worked on mainframe computers uh, when I was in high school. And I thought, wow, this this internet thing's a little bit like a mainframe computer. You got a little super light terminal on one end and a big computer on the other end. The, other, the big computer you can't really see, but it allows you to do to go to all sorts of places for uh, people to author content on one side without knowing who the client is. This, this is going to be something. And it turns out that all the big internet companies, like Yahoo, the first generation ones, Yahoo and eBay and whatnot, they were all generally vintage 90, 1995 companies. There weren't any real kind of uh, what we today think of as web 1.0 companies that existed in 94. So I tried to get a job at, at Netscape and Mark Andreessen and Jim Clark were like, well, you're useless. You're not a computer scientist and, <laughs> and you have an MBA. So like, go away. And so I did all this research and I figured out that, you know, the internet has a specialized infrastructure. It runs on these things called routers. And it turns out there's a company down the street called Cisco that makes all these routers. So Cisco was not a really big company at that point in time. It, it, we, you know, when I joined, it was probably a little over a thousand employees, something like that. It was publicly traded, you know, valued less than a billion. So not even a unicorn by today's standards. But I thought like, well, if the internet's going to be big, people will buy lots of routers. This, this was my deep, thoughtful MBA quality analysis. And it uh, turns out that luckily I was right. And people bought a lot of routers, a lot, a lot of them. And, you know, it got used for all sorts of applications and so forth. So I joined Cisco when they were doing about 500 million in revenue. And then, you know, 14 years later, when I left, you know, they were doing like 30 billion in revenue. And, you know, you say sort of, I worked my way to the top, but it was pretty straightforward. I was lucky enough to end up working for the CTO of, uh, directly for the CTO for some strange reason. And he sort of just let me do my thing. He let me, initially I was leading the investments team and the acquisition team. Leading means there was me and I was managing myself. We added one person and two people and so on and so forth. And over the next, uh, you know, seven, eight years at, at, at Cisco, we bought, you know, like a hundred companies and uh, invested in 250 of them. And that sort of led me down the path of ultimately being chief strategy officer and reporting uh, to John Chambers. I sort of got there at the right time and ended up in the right role, I would say, which just opened up a lot of very fortuitous pathways for me. Interesting you say you got there at the right time. And definitely it it's, must have been a really interesting time to, to start working in one of the big internet companies before they are big, but you still had to identify, I guess, which one to work for. You said routers, let's go talk to Cisco. There must have been other router companies. Was there any process on your side where you say, okay, well, for this reason, this seems to be the one to go work at? 
So I did a little bit of research. So I found three companies at the time that that uh, looked to have promise. Uh, Cisco, there's a company on the East Coast called Wellfleet, which eventually renamed itself to Bay Networks and eventually got merged into a variety of things. And there was 3Com. I did a bit of research by calling uh, or by getting in touch with some of my uh, colleagues that were working at ISPs at the time, internet service providers. And I just, just called and I asked like, what routers do you use? And the ISPs at the time were just all using Cisco's. Like th they, they definitely had the winning market share. I was like, look, I just got to get a job here. So I, I really, you know, once I decided, I was just like by hook or by crook, this is where I'm getting a job. You know, I was lucky enough to find a couple of people that, that, uh, that sort of believed in me. That's such a great story, and that, that uh, makes me think I did something wrong myself. Because actually, I worked in, in a help, at a help desk for an ISP back in, in my uh, college days, taking calls, helping people set up their internet. But I never went to look into the closets of the ISP to see what routers they use and, and, and buy stock of, of those companies. So yeah, missed opportunity. In retrospect, you can always tell wonderful stories about your life. I had no idea that the internet was going to be as big as it was going to be. I thought there was something very special happening. You know, at the time, there might have been a thousand websites when I got into it. I just figured, you know, I had job offers from Microsoft and I had job offers from a bunch of other places, but I just felt like some sparkle there. And um, in some sense, that intuition that I had is a lot of the intuition that I try to use now as a VC, right? It is like, I think in the journey of startups, you need great entrepreneurs, you need great technology. But one of the things, that, one of the pieces of magic that you look for is that, is there sort of a strong wave of momentum coming your way? And half of your job is getting on that wave. If I learned one thing from that journey, you know, 25 years ago, is I figured out what the wave was. And it's not that I had a fantastic product or, you know, that necessarily I was a world-class business leader, but I figured out the wave. And, and that's a lot of what we do as venture capitalists is to try to understand when, when is a technology going to become business impactful. Now, when I was working through the list of investments you've made, exactly on the topic you mentioned, I noticed next to every company, the index website lists a theme and this or sector. And there were sectors, data, retail, mobility, open source, entertainment, AI, machine learning. And so, so I'm kind of curious, as you think about essentially the, the next wave, the next wave, the next wave, how did you see these things come about? Like how, how did you kind of converge onto any, any one of those uh, as you think about the themes to invest into? Yeah, well, I, I think that in, in, in our technology industry, you know, every five to 10 years, there's a really interesting platform technology that happens, that, that occurs, which is enormously transformative to a lot of other fields. And if you look at the theme that Cisco became Cisco on, it was the idea that the world needed to be connected through an internet. It's so obvious today. In the early days, all the telcos and the phone companies, they hated TCP IP. They were like, oh, this is garbage. It's for enthusiasts. It can't carry video. It can't carry voice. They thought this Zoom thing would never happen. There was these other technologies that they proposed like ATM and cell-based transport and frame relay and all this nonsense. But 
TCPIP became it. It became the platform. And then on top of that, people started building the first commerce sites and they started building search and they started building all sorts of other interesting content. Those technologies like that, mobile is a technology like that. We would never have imagined doing what we do with our iPhones today, even 15 years ago, never. But they do come along and when they do, they have a massively transformative impact. So it's part of my job is to look for that, to look for these technologies that like suddenly change the playing field and enable a whole bunch of new stuff to happen. And, you know, I think circa 2014, 15, I started feeling like AI was that, that it was like the next one of these that would have a big transformative impact on a whole range of businesses and a whole range of use cases. And so I was like, ah, maybe this is another moment, like the one that I saw when I first saw my iPhone or the one that I first saw, you know, even, even before the internet thing, I was like a complete Mac enthusiast nutcase because I used to work on terminal computers and then I saw my first Mac and I was like, hallelujah, this is it. Like the world will never be the same. And I, I had kind of that feeling when I first bumped into AI, you know, five, six years ago. I want to get back to the AI in a, in a moment. First, I want, I want to kind of learn a bit more about how did you decide to switch from Cisco to become a venture capitalist? Because those are, I mean, arguably di different things. You spend all that time at Cisco and then you decide to become a venture capitalist. What, what triggered that? Two things, Peter. One was, you know, the, the, the happiest period I had at Cisco was the first seven years that I worked there. And, you know, I, yes, I worked at the, the, this big corporation, but my job was to invest in companies and to acquire them. So I was sort of like an in-house VC. I had a pretty good taste for what venture capitalists did. And then, you know, Cisco being a very acquisitive company, I got to know all sorts of VCs up and down Sand Hill Road, you know, and, you know, we spent a lot of money on companies. So I was, I was a crowd favorite amongst the VCs. You know, I was like a big giant walking wallet, essentially. And so uh, they were very nice to me. And, and uh, I, I had a pretty good feeling for what that was like. Then, you know, I wanted to sort of find my roots back at Cisco. So after seven years, I went back and I led these fairly sizable hardware and software engineering teams that we did everything from design chips. I know you had Simon on uh, to talk about uh, some of the networking chips. We actually made some of those chips in my teams made the hardware, made the software, et cetera, et cetera. It was super fun, but it got to the point when we had like 50,000 employees that I really missed and yearned the smaller days. In a smaller company, the impact that an individual can have is incredibly outsized, uh, right? One person can make an enormous difference. And there's something for me, that's something special. And I felt like I was no longer able to have that kind of outsized impact at Cisco. I mean, it was a, it's an amazing company. I really cherish the days I spent there, but it wasn't for me anymore. So I left. I actually did a, uh, joined a, a startup as a CEO, which didn't particularly work out. And when that journey ended, the company got sold. Uh, when that journey ended, I was like, you know, I had a moment to pause and think, you know, what were my happiest days as a professional? And it led me to think that, you know, this ability of discovering technology, discovering people, and seeing just around the corner. Not that I always did it right, but that was amazing to me. That gave me great satisfaction. A VC's job is to try to see around the corner, um, especially if you want to have unusually good returns. 
you can't just do the same thing that everybody else is doing. You got to do something different and you got to see a little bit of the future. So you try a bunch of things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But that moment of like, ah, this is what I like to do. I, I really enjoy doing this and having doing that as a profession will be a lot of fun for me. It led me to the conclusion that venture capital is the right step for me. If somebody concluded venture capital is the right step for them, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can become a venture capitalist the next day. Um, how did you go about that? Well, I was lucky enough to know a lot of people in the business and they, you know, I wasn't the most unattractive of candidates. So I got, I got a lot of, I got a lot of calls and I ended up joining Index uh, in particular because they gave me the opportunity. The firm gave me the opportunity to launch a brand new activity for Index in, in the Bay Area. The Index was not in the Bay Area at the time. And they said, we want to go there and we want to build something. It sort of combined a slightly entrepreneurial itch with the job of doing a VC. And that's turned out really well for us at Index. We're super happy with it. It's like half our business now is in the US. But I think I did have to retrain my brain a little bit when I had to switch from working in a company to working in a VC. It, it, it is a very different mentality. I think a lot of people say, well, like VCs, oper people who are operators make better VCs. I'm not entirely sure that the truism, I, I don't know that one particular background prepares you well to be a VC, but I do think you have to unwind your brain a little bit when you've been in a company for a long time to become a VC, because ultimately being a venture capitalist is a game of somewhat biased statistics, right? You invest in a certain number of companies. If you have a good bias, more will work out than not. And if more work out than not, you have a better outcome than everybody else. But you fail a lot. Like, you know, you continuously fail as a VC. You pick a lot of companies that unfortunately, you know, for all the best efforts don't work out. You learn that failure is okay, that you just got to try again. You just got to find the next one. And the one that works obviously compensate many times over for the ones that don't work. That is a very different mentality than being an operator. Because when I, you know, when my team and I was leading my team to develop the core internet routers, for example, these were the big routers that ran in the middle of the internet ISPs and all that. There was no failure. Like you couldn't fail. Like that product had to come to market. There was no option of saying, ah, tried it, didn't work out. Let's do, let's do something else. And so you develop this mindset of the journey, this mentality of step-by-step, step, we're going to figure out how to make this work. Okay, this didn't work. Let's change it. Let's change the design over here. Let's redo the software there. Let's do, you know, let's use this new technology for the line card over here, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you come in with that mindset as a VC, and that's not the right mindset. The, the, you have to let go of things. Sometimes they don't work, and sometimes you're just going to be wrong. And sometimes when you're right, you're, you're super right. And that unwinding of the mind that like sort of rejiggering pivot took probably a couple of two, three years for me to really like reset my mind. That's so interesting that, that you say that. And it does feel very different to have to make these educated guesses. And sometimes that's, I think what they are, right? Educated guesses of which companies have a higher potential to succeed than which other ones and, and invest in those and, and, and guide those companies. But then, as you said, a big part is that some companies will not make it or not make it as big that you're willing to declare it, you know, a successful investment. And I'm kind of curious, are, are there some situations where that happened? And imagine the very first time you had an investment that didn't make it. it must have been a, an interesting experience, to say the least. What was that like? 
Yeah, it's tough. I would say there's two things that you walk away from that type of a situation with. The first is the people, which is that, you know, entrepreneurs just don't do this once. They do this multiple times. And often entrepreneurs that failed once make much better entrepreneurs a second time. So it didn't work out, but you walk away with the instinct to try to do something again with the same people. So that's of value. The second is you try to really understand what you screwed up in either decision to invest or in the, in, in the various pieces of advice that you provided along the way on how to build the business. And you, you try to go, okay, you know, obviously I wasn't being an idiot when I made this decision to invest. What were my wrong assumptions? What did I analyze incorrectly? And no investment, at least the way I think, is that I never run into an investment where it's like, oh, this is perfect. Of course we invest in this thing. You know, every situation you look at and say, good, 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 bad, bad, right? And you go, oh, on balance, I think this will work. So then you go look, the thing that I find very important is to go early on when you made the investment, look at the concerns that you had and then say, did those actually not work out? Were the things that I hypothesized as problems early on actually turn out to be the problems? And you try to see like, did I have the right intuition? And then the next time you have an opportunity to look at it, to try to say, let me make sure that I don't repeat that mistake. Let me make sure that if I had that concern, that I can convince myself that I will be able to alleviate that concern somewhere along the way. So every, every mistake you make in investing is an enormous learning opportunity. In fact, it's a better learning opportunity because success clouds a lot of errors. When things go well, you forget about all the things that you did wrong. And uh, I think it's when you fail that you have to put a spotlight on what didn't work and try to learn from that. It does remind me a little bit of academic research, actually, where you, you constantly come up with hypotheses of maybe this idea will work, maybe this idea will work. And often the name of the game is to find the shortest path to, to validate a hypothesis or to, to prove it wrong and to make sure you don't go on a super long journey to, um, to somehow, you know, try to right away prove the whole thing, but instead find the smallest piece you can, you can prove out or disprove and revise your intuition about what you're working on. Yeah. Look, I mean, if you can fast fail even better in a startup universe, it's not that easy to fast fail, right? Because if I came to you and said, Peter, you know, this covariant thing, it's been great fun, but look, it's not working. You know, you're not going to come in and say, you know what, you're right, Mike, let's move on to the next thing. Like you're going to keep at it. So fast fail is hard in our business, but you can still have learning moments at some point in time that say like, hmm, okay, well, this assumption I made over here and so forth didn't quite, didn't quite pan out. And I got to look for that in the next time. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not so much fast fail whole company, maybe that you'd ever be looking for. It's more uh, fa fast tracking specific hypotheses of how, how to go to market or, or what, what version of a product might have more promise, I imagine. Well, at some point I can sit down with you and show you covariance concerns that I had, and we can see if we can work those out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful we will uh, update the, your um, assessment at the end of the journey will be that those concerns were invalid. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me. I hope they are. Now, one of the things you mentioned is there are these, these waves of, of technology, internet, mobile, and then AI as another wave. And so... From my perspective, of course, I've worked in AI since ever I've, I've been working on anything, really. That's, that's been my journey. And 
in the beginning, it was clear. None of it was ready for real world commercialization. That didn't bother me. I was excited to do research in it and, and see where we can get. But then the very big change, I would say, was when deep learning started to work because it, it, it gave this feeling that you could, for anything you collect data for, if you collect enough data of the right type, you can train a neural network to automate the decision from input to output, right? And of course, the big moment in, in research was the 2012 ImageNet moment, Jeff Hinton and his students showing that deep neural nets are so much better than prior approaches to computer vision. And I'm kind of curious, you're, you're a venture capitalist at the time. Did that moment even hit your radar and other investors' radars? Or is it a different moment that kind of hit it home for you? No, it, that, that was not the moment for me. Uh, and you know, most VCs, rightfully so, aren't tracking the evolution of every crazy technology that's out there. So I would not say that that moment was a trigger for me. For me, the trigger, and some of this is awareness, but um, I used to go to the TED conference up in Vancouver, and I forget if it was 2014 or 2015, Chris Ernston gave a talk about self-driving cars. He got up on stage. I'd sort of loosely heard that Google was working on some wacky stuff. And I was like, all right, well, we'll see this guy has, has to say. So he gets on stage and he talks about this stuff. And like the, the minute the thing ended, I was like, holy cow, like, how do they do this? Like, how is this possible that this system can recognize objects and can, you know, create some logic as to how to negotiate objects while driving? Like this, this deeply human act which involves actually quite a bit of human complexity. Like it, it involves, and it actually involves obviously a lot of physics because of light and all these. I was like, wow, that, that's really cool. And that talk led me to just start reading on the internet about AI, deep learning, vision, AlexNet, ImageNet, all that stuff. And from there I went hunting and pecking to meet all these different characters, some of whom you've had on your podcast to kind of understand all of the evolution and why and how things fit in and so on and so forth. So it was really that talk where I was like, yep, there's something, something special is going to happen here. And then the more I went down the rabbit hole, the more I kind of came to the conclusion that this was, it could possibly want to be one of these large themes that have long-term transformational impact. Now that's so interesting because the self-driving indeed is one of the more visible activities in AI because we're all driving and we understand that maybe a smart system could do that for us and more safely than, than we could do it. Always pay attention that never be, well, it could actually be on a cell phone and drive at the same time. Computers can do things in parallel better, better than humans, right? So it's very interesting because at the same time, when you see this talk in self-driving, you must have realized this is not ready. Like this is very cool. This is very surprising. This is possible what I'm seeing here, but this is not ready yet. And so how was your thinking from there, from this is surprising, but also not ready to, to kind of form ideas about maybe where are the places things might be ready or to invest maybe long-term and, and have a very long-term plan as, as you have for self-driving specifically? Yeah, I think that's, a, so that's a super good question. I think there's a lot of technologies that are very cool that aren't ready for prime time, prime time meaning commercialization. And Doing the assessment of that is about understanding a little bit of how the technology works 
and how it might be applied in the real world. In the case of self-driving, of course, I realized that the te technology wasn't ready, but it did introduce me to deep learning. And then I went and started looking at how else is deep learning being used. And it turns out that self-driving was actually one of the hardest things you could do <laughs> with deep learning. It was like the, it was the decathlon of deep learning, but there were a lot of individual sports where deep learning might apply. And in fact, I didn't realize this, but you know, the bigger companies, Google and Facebook and others, were beginning to use deep learning in a variety of more, shall we say, mundane applications, but very usefully. And so the fact that deep learning was being used already at that point, this is like circa 2015-16, in a variety of somewhat more mundane, but very monetizable use cases, led me to think, well, that tech is super cool. Someday it'll be used for a lot of things, but already today it can be used for a set of things that you can make money at. And that's when I came to the conclusion that it may not be prime time for everything, but it's prime time for something. And that's probably good enough to continue to emphasize it. And, you know, also the more I studied the self-driving stuff, the more it lead me to understand for academics like you, this is completely obvious, but one of my big realizations, for example, early on was that traditional computer science is largely taking our logic that we think in our minds and writing an algorithm in code, which represents that logic. That's what computer science fundamentally is. And there's lots of languages and tools and so forth, but to do that. The different thing about deep learning is that the really valuable asset is data, right? And there's actually not much programming that you do. You do a little bit of programming to create a model, and then you just throw data at it. So it actually shifts the balance of power, if you will, from human logic to data collection and understanding the right set of data. So that has a lot of interesting business implications then, right? Because when you shift the power locus in an equation in business, it's very, very important because that's where money goes. This whole sort of journey from Chris Herman's talk to investing in a bunch of deep learning companies gave me a bunch of little insights that said, huh, okay, well, deep learning businesses are going to be a little bit different because of the equation now the power locus is a little different. And in order to do that, let me go explore businesses that do this sort of thing that have a lot of data and, and so forth. That's kind of how you lead down the investment path of understanding where, where the leverage exists in creating a business. That's so interesting. I'm curious, do you remember any of the kind of early successful applications of deep learning that you saw where you're like, wow, it's interesting, it's already used here or there successfully? Yeah, uh, recommendation engines, ads, uh, ad targeting stuff, those types of you know, personalization. I think it was beginning to be used in, in fraud uh, type application in a detecting, detecting fraud type use cases, all of which, I mean, again, recommendations or engines are pretty cool, but you know, not revolutionary. It's like, oh my God, like it's a recommendation engine. But you, know, you made lots of money, but you, know, you can materially differentiate the profitability of a, of a e-commerce business by having a better recommendation engine. So those sorts of pretty straightforward applications, I saw use cases of it in, in forecasting, inventory management type applications, those types of things, you know, pretty straightforward by, by today's standards, meat and potatoes, but materially beneficial to businesses that were employing it. Now, it's interesting you're, you're saying it leads to a bit of a, a shift of the locus of power in a business where it's a little less about writing code and more about understanding 
where the data is going to be coming from. Is it going to be the right kind of data for what we're doing? What can we do with the data we already have and so forth? Can't help but think about your investment in scale must fit somewhere in that whole reasoning process. Yeah, pretty much exactly spot on on that one. To your point of when can a technology be commercialized, right? In deep learning, there's sort of supervised and unsupervised learning. And when I started looking at stuff in 2017, 2016, 17, unsupervised stuff was kind of a little out there. It just didn't feel like it was commercialized. Most of the stuff that seemed to be commercially viable was supervised learning. And for supervised learning, not only do you need a lot of data, but you need annotated and labeled data, particularly for vision-related applications, but also for language. And now at the time when I looked at it, because the big transformer papers, all of the BERT GPT stuff, the you know, uh, the attention papers hadn't come out yet. The, the big thrust was vision. And in vision, you have to have annotated data or you don't have to have it anymore. But at the time, it was like, look, the more annotated data you have, the more well annotated data you have, it's meaningful. So the thesis, a lot of people were like, well, annotation is just like dumb. You just put a box around it and like put a name on it and that's all there is to it. But it turns out that it's very expensive. It's really, really expensive to annotate. It's very time consuming and slow, especially when you have a lot of data. So if you have a company that can figure out how to do labeling and annotations in a more efficient, cheaper, and fast way, it's a huge advantage in this business, right? So most people looked at scale and they were like, huh, labeling, yawn. And I looked at it and said, wait, if these, these, these guys do right, people are going to be used a lot of labeled data for the next decade, like a lot of it. The naysayers would also say like, oh, someday it's all unsupervised learning. You never need labels. And I was like, okay, well, maybe that's true. And at that point, when scale is a $500 million business, we'll figure out a way how to make money on unsupervised data. But for now, we're going to make money on this stuff. And it turned out to be true. There's a, there's a, you need a lot of labeled data for a lot of different kinds of applications. You know, the investment in scale has worked out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, scale is clearly doing great. And I like your notion there that there is a a specific timing you have in mind also. You're saying, yes, in the future, maybe in the future, it's all or mostly unsupervised, but in the meantime, so many things are going to be built, create value, and it's always possible to include the unsupervised in, into the company later and, and provide value through unsupervised also. It also does seem to matter then that you run fast. I mean, when you choose a company to invest into, in this case, scale, it sounds like from the beginning, you have to have an idea that this could execute relatively quickly. This you know, can execute in the next few years, not in the next decade, because the next decade would introduce a lot of uncertainty about unsupervised learning and the role of that. Yeah, I think the single most important asset a young company has is momentum. That is the most important asset. It's, it's actually not the technology, it's momentum. And so when you have momentum, you can do unbelievable things about that. You can transform your business in all sorts of ways, right? You know, classic analogy is Amazon built momentum as a bookseller and look what they do and what they're doing today, right? So, you know, the key thing is in a, within a reasonable amount of time, and I, I call that reasonable amount within a two to three year horizon, a company needs to find momentum. Once it finds that momentum, everything else starts coming its way. Uh, more capital comes its way, more talented people come their way, more customers come their way. It enables the company or it gives the company a foundation to then invest in more transformative and new stuff. 
So if you apply that lesson to something like scale, the company built momentum on this, you know, perhaps mundane, but interesting business called labeling. And if you actually look at what it's doing now, it's doing a whole bunch of other new and interesting stuff, which it could not have done had it not attracted more capital, had it not attracted more people, had it not had this momentum that allowed it to do it. So when you say you got to go fast, it's because if you don't want to build momentum in a reasonable time horizon, then it's stale. And people say like, that company's been around for five years. You know, they're always like trying to do the big next thing, but they never get there. And none of the smart people go there. Capital doesn't go there and so forth. So there is this time window, this, you know, this period within which you're given leeway to start getting that flywheel going. And then once it's going, you have a lot of latitude to do a lot of interesting things. As always, we will also be posting a video recording of this conversation onto our YouTube channel and our website, therobotbrains.ai. We'd love for you to subscribe to our channel to make sure that you get an alert whenever we post a new episode. You can email us at podcast at therobotbrains.ai with any thoughts about the show, suggestions for future guests, or with any questions you may have. You can show your support for the podcast by giving us a review on whichever platforms you listen to our show. And please consider sharing our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Now, Scale is one of the the big AI companies that, that you've invested in or on the board of. The other big one or one of the other big ones is, of course, Aurora, which you've alluded to. I'm curious, how, how did you make that decision? You saw Chris on, on stage, but I think he was at Google at the time. So how do we go from you watching Chris on stage representing Google to Chris running his own company and you're one of the uh, first investors in the company? Well, Peter, now you, you know me a little bit, so you know that I'm stubborn and persistent. I do think that when you're going to invest in something that resembles a moonshot, which is clearly self-driving was one of them. And the truth is, I don't actually do a thousand of those, uh, but occasionally I, I do. Uh, I, I'm lucky enough to invest in one or two of them. When you're going to do something like that, you got to do it with somebody who's the industry leader. And at the time, there was, you know, Chris was it. You know, I saw him on stage and then I used my network to get connected with him. And he, with time he was at Google and he's like, you loser VC, go away. We don't really want to talk to people like you. And then actually I got a little bit lucky because Google decided to make a management change there and br bring in an outsider to run what was then called Chauffeur. Eventually it became the Waymo. And Chris wasn't very happy with that change. So he left, putzed around for a little while trying to think about what he wanted to do next. And I had built a relationship with him to that point where I cajoled him to have coffee with me a bunch of times. And I helped him think through it because obviously he had a set of knowledge that could be applied in multiple domains. And he wasn't even sure, I think, if he wanted to really give it another go in self-driving. And part of the journey with him over that six to nine months between jobs was to actually convince him that this was his calling, that he should actually go for it again. And that technology moves on and it and there's never one just one winner and there was an opportunity to still catch up and all that so you know when he did decide ultimately to start aurora with drew and sterling you know i was on the short list of people that he wanted to talk to and i think it was sort of that persistence and a little bit of almost uh 
career advice that I gratuitously gave out, which, which, which helped him ultimately bring me into his, uh, his adventure. Now, when you think about self-driving and you call it a bit of a moonshot, right? And obviously there's the, the recent New York Times article that was saying self-driving is, is going to, you know, it's proving harder than many people thought it was going to be because there were quotes in 2015, 2016 and so forth. Not, not from Chris or you, but there were quotes out there saying, you know, we'll have, you know, our cars will be driving themselves long before today, actually, right? And that obviously didn't didn't happen. And I'm, I'm curious, as an investor, how did you see that journey? And I'm also curious, I mean, ultimately your money comes from LPs who you raised the fund from, and there must be some kind of education happening in the process of, you know, th- this, is, this is a moonshot, <laughs> this is gonna take a while. In the meantime, you know, Elon Musk says it's gonna be there tomorrow really yesterday or, or two years ago. So yeah, I'm curious about, about how you, you approach that. Yeah, I mean, first thing I would say, Peter, is that every breakthrough platform technology, whether it's the web, whether it's mobile, whether it's AI, goes through some level of a hype cycle, right? Where everybody believes that everything's gonna happen tomorrow, and it turns out that it doesn't happen tomorrow, but it happens five years later, 10 years later. Normal. It happens all the time in our business and it's totally fine. You know, I had reasonably sanguine expectation about how long it would take to do self-driving. And the more I, I learned about it, the better I understood how complex it was. And we could talk about how to, how to think about some of these investments and, and time horizons and where AI works well today and not in a minute. But the way that, you know, you, at least that I think about my job is that I've been doing venture capital for 12 years. I know how to make money on a certain set of investments. So the way I think about it is 80% of the stuff that I do, uh, I'm, I'm making an investment that I know will, with high degree of certainty, return some good amounts of money. That gives me the latitude to do a few things occasionally that are a bit crazy that probably have a slightly higher likelihood of failure. But as long as I'm doing my core work, I'm allowing myself the flexibility to do some crazy things once in a while. And our investors are totally comfortable with that because they, they, they understand that we're doing our job. And, you know, I do a lot of data related investments, you know, things like Elastic and, you know, Confluent and Cockroach Labs and so forth, which, you know, I, I look at those and I go, yep, I know how to do this. I'm going to make some money on it. And that then gives me the permission to do some crazy things. And my, our investors are fine with that. Now, you say crazy, but when you think about crazy, do you think mostly about it might take longer? Because it seems like in some sense, self-driving cars are inevitable, right? It, it's more a matter of, of, of time maybe than it is a matter of it being crazy to expect there to be self-driving cars someday. Yeah. At this moment in time, there's speculation, whether it's the New York Times or you know some of the haters on Twitter that will say it'll never work. And I, I just totally wrong. It will work. There's no, no question that it'll work. What's difficult to predict is an exact timeline, in part also because we encapsulate in this one word self-driving, and we assume that the system will do exactly what we do as people. And I think that's a mistaken assumption because there are many different types of driving that we do, and some of those types of driving will work sooner and some will not. You know, the example I like to give is I'm Italian, but I don't know how to drive in Rome. Rome is a very, very difficult city to drive in because people have a different st- set of standards and rules. The problem is more complex 
than my ability to drive. Roman taxi drivers seem to be doing just fine with it, but I cannot do it. However, I can drive on 280, which means that machines will have the same problem. Lots of machines could be able to drive on 280. Driving in Rome might not be the most obvious thing to do. So there's a very different timeline depending on the use case. Unfortunately, we all crystallize it down to this thing like self-driving when it actually is a, actually a very broad horizon of use cases with different economics around each one and different complexity around each one. And uh, I think that's the way you got to think about the problem is it's not just one thing, but it's 10 different things. And which one do you attack first? Now, that brings me to some something else I've always been curious about learning, learning more about, which is I remember when we started talking and in the context of, of Covariant, right? It wasn't just you. There was you and Damir. Damir is also at, at Index, of course. I remember our first conversation uh, of course, I didn't impress you with the restaurant. I saw that in, in the blog post later. Uh, you, you called it a mediocre restaurant, which... <laughs> it wasn't the best, you know? Maybe it's the best that Berkeley can offer up right now. No, it, I think your assessment is, is uh, mediocre, is, is, a, is, a, is a fair assessment. Um, but, but what I remember is when you came into the conversation with, with Damir, and, and we're just getting to know each other at the time, but... Damir especially, but also you to some extent, I think, had already done a lot of research on your own in the space of robotics, kind of in the more kind of specific sense of robotic manipulation rather than, than robotic driving. And I'm kind of curious, is that common? Like for, for many investments you make, do you do a lot of research in the field ahead of time? Or is it more that you just hear it for the first time when a company comes to you? No, we're obviously open-minded to anything that shows up across our desk, but we do have certain themes that we pay attention to. If it's aligned with one of our themes, we do our homework ahead of time. And specifically in the case of Covariant, it hit two of our themes, right? One was the rise of e-commerce. And we had, with Envy, observed the amazing journey that companies like Shopify had had. And we thought to ourselves, there's going to be a lot of a lot lot more e-commerce than we think which means there's going to be a lot of e-commerce warehouses and if there's automation or robotics that fits that use case people will use a lot of it so we sort of did our homework on how our warehouses set up and how do they work and who uses them and who are the customers and why do they do this and what problems do they have and so forth so we had that theme and then the other theme we had was around ai applied to a vision use case, which we thought was probably on the more mature side of it. But the one lesson that we had learned from Aurora is that the more repetitive and straightforward the problem is, the better AI does at solving it. One of the very complex things about driving is that we're actually doing a lot of different things when we're driving. It's, it's, it, we, it doesn't seem that way because we do it every day, but humans are doing something very complex. And that's why in some cases, driving is actually enjoyable for people. Picking up an object out of a bin and sticking it into another one is in no form enjoyable, in never, in any case. No human being says like, you know what? I'm really excited this morning about picking up toothpaste and putting it in another bin. And it turns out to be a reasonably repetitive task. It requires some dexterity. It requires visual recognition right? It, it, it requires the identification and classification of an object, all things that AI does well, but it turns out it's a boring task that you have to do over and over again. So here's a perfect use case for AI. AI is really good at those kinds of tasks and a perfect market need for it. And we were like, wow, Covariant is hitting exactly the spot in the market that we want to be in. 
where there's a big market theme. You know, we talked about earlier, like big themes that are happening and an AI or, or a technology whose maturity cycle has got it just to the point where this problem can be solved. And the two kind of came together, right? And that's a moment as a venture capitalist, at least in our style of investing, where we're doing homework in the back and we have these themes and like two themes come across each other and we go like, yeah, this is it, we like it. And that's how we ended up investing. We're very glad that we have you on, on the Kaverian team, Mike. And one thing I'm curious about is when you do those investigations, right? And, and you find these themes, is there then some, some kind of notion that you're just kind of hoping somebody will show up who, who is just like, who's just like, that's what they want to be doing. And, and you're just kind of hoping this will happen or, or is there more you can do to get that to happen for you? Mostly you are. Uh, you know, the, the analogy that I give people that I think is mentally helpful about this job is that the three things need to come together for a company to really work. And it's a little bit like surfing. So in surfing, you need three basic things. You need a wave, you need a human, and you need a board, right? Three things need to happen. We, our themes are the waves. We're looking for waves that are coming in. And then the board is the technology, right? And is the board the correct instrument to ride this wave? And if, you're, if you've ever surfed, you need different boards for different kinds of waves. And then the last is the, the human, which is the founder. And when those three things together, you've got an investment opportunity. Now, what you find is that in the process of researching the wave, you bump into the people, right? You bump into the surfers and you're like, what do you do? What do you do? Let me introduce you to this one and so forth. And the proactive thing that you could do is to build a network around the wave. Once you have a network, sooner or later, the right surfer shows up with the right board. And sometimes that takes six months, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it happens right away, you never know, but you're just increasing the probability of bumping into the right person. But you can't do it yourself. Like, you know, some VCs will say like, oh, we incubate stuff, I, I, I don't buy it. I think that on average, the greatest companies have been created by the people who were in the right network at the right time when the right wave came. And, you know, there's exceptions without a doubt, but that's much more the model that I subscribe to. Now, that's the big picture, right, of what you are trying to achieve in some sense as, as you are trying to identify new companies to invest into. But earlier you said about, you know, 20% of your time is investing, 80% of your time is help building companies. So I'm really curious about that side. Like if you look, for example, at just, you know, your schedule from yesterday or something, you know, concretely, what does it look like a day in the life of, of Mike Volpe? Well, you spend a lot of time on the phone or meeting with your, with your founders. You know, I try to meet with most of my founders at least once a week, once every two weeks. So there's a lot of time there. Founders are always wondering about all sorts of things, customer issues, strategy issues, people issues, organizational issues, interviewing candidates, et cetera. So, you know, what, one is just to, to be of advice and, you know, that takes up a good amount of your time. We do a lot of interviewing on behalf of our companies. And as you know, you and I have interviewed lots and lots of candidates for Covariant together. Well, I've got, you know, 13, 14 boards. So the work you and I did times 13 takes up a lot of my time, but that's productive because sometimes that leads you to another person or another idea or whatever. We do meet with a lot of companies, but that's pretty quick. You know, one meeting and you have a pretty good idea of whether that's something that you want to do or not. And then I spend a little bit of time wherever I can find it to learn or research about new things that I care about. 
which is some of the early work that I did around AI. Many of the things that we do reinforce each other. So when I work with Alex Wang at scale on his strategy, I learn about the types of things that they are labeling. The types of things that they are labeling tell me, tells me who's using AI and what kind of use case. And then that tells me that possibly there's a company that's providing them with technology. So they're all dots that connect. And a lot of times, like aside from the board meetings, which consume some amount of time and so forth, you're just trying to connect the dots of where they lead you down. Before you know it, another investment opportunity pops up. Now, one of the things that you said earlier is that some things in AI are maybe ready for commercialization. Some things are about to be ready. And then some things might be further out. When you think about that today, like when you look at the landscape today, if you're able to share something about that, how would you see kind of, what do you see as the things that are kind of ready today and and are, you see a lot of activity of, of new companies that you think are on a good path. And then maybe from there, where do you see it next? And what is really still too early maybe? Yeah. First, I'd say generally investing in AI, I kind of break it down into two theses, right? One is investing in AI infrastructure, which are the picks and shovels of AI. And the other one is investing in applications that use AI, right? And they're both interesting categories. I think that in the long term, applications that use AI are a bigger investment opportunity. Much in the way, like if you think about the early internet days, it was certainly a good investment to invest in a router company, but the world that got created on top of the web is much bigger than the infrastructure that was needed for the web to run on. Similar in AI. I think there are some very good companies and we're investors in some of them that are in the infra business of AI. And I think we'll get some good stuff, but I think the the universe of use case-based or applications of AI is very large and very, very unbounded. Now, today as it stands, you know, we talked about this earlier a little bit, but I think that this idea that AI is happening or has happened is putting the wrong time constant on it. Like there are people that are out there saying AGI is happening tomorrow. Like we need to have regulation to control AGI. And, you know, that self-driving cars happened yesterday and that there's a robocalypse coming. And I think that we're off by decades in our time frame. There are some very intelligent uses today. And I think AGI might happen, but not in my useful lifetime. So you got to stretch out the time horizon over which AI becomes an interesting and commercial use case, and then pick applications where AI is very well suited to solve the problem. I find that the application, you know, there's obviously the infra stuff, which we talked about, labeling, data management, et cetera, et cetera, very interesting. And then uh, on the applied side, I look for mundane physical things that humans do, which humans don't like doing, but that they have to do a lot of that can be replaced by AI. Picking and placing things, moving around heavy objects, working in a coal mine, you know, reading documents and endlessly translating my credit card number into uh, an Excel spreadsheet or information for my electricity bill. Those are all the things that are super boring to do. People have to do them today. Machines will do them for us within a very short horizon. And that's where you're going to make money right now. That's so interesting. And other than things that you said, AGI is 
far out. I find it personally really hard to put any timing on AGI because, I mean, it seems AI gets more and more capable all the time. And as we scale up our compute and, and, and new ideas come into play, it gets better. And it's not really clear. The distance is not clear. Though personally, I also think it's not going to happen in the next five to 10 years. I find it very hard to be confident it wouldn't happen, let's say, in 20 years. It's just such a hard thing to think about. But then in terms of commercialization, are there kind of places where you see AI go practically maybe, you know, 10 years from now or seven? I don't know. What horizon do you even invest with is maybe the question. Like if AI is going to be helpful somewhere in five years, is today the time to invest or should the company be started a few years from now? Look, I mean, when we talk about AGI, people throw out examples like DeepMind and AlphaGo and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, computers will beat me at any chess game or any Go game anytime you want, but that's a bounded rule set. The game has a bounded set of rules and a machine that plays it a bazillion times is going to get better than me at it. It turns out that largely life, real life is unbounded. It doesn't have a set of rules. And a reinforcement function is not obvious. Like what is a reinforcement function for a human being is not at all obvious because we all have very different goals in life. We all measure happiness in a very different way. We all think of wealth very differently. So our reinforcement function is totally unclear. And that's why I think AGI is very, very far away because we don't, humans don't have a very obvious objection function basically. So I think that stuff is pretty far out in my view, there are elements that will eventually lead to AGI that are very applicable today. So for example, if I wanted to design a chatbot that specifically talks to me about resetting my password, I can do that with, with an AGI. If I want a tweet to be read and understood whether that's offensive or racially biased, I can do that with AGI. It's a very small fraction of what a human would do but I can do that. If I tell you, please write me an article about the latest IPO, AI can do that. These are very narrow things where the core technology, in this case, since we talked about language examples, these are all transformer related things, but you can do that and they're very useful. So you can apply it, but that's a very far cry from you know understanding what we are and humans do. And I'm pretty sure that I'll be able to quickly figure out that a chatbot isn't it isn't the human on the other side once I go off piste and start asking them about parachuting instead of like, how do I reset my computer? How about AIs helping you make decisions? I think that they can be used in some of the things that we look for. You know, I'll give you an example. If there is a thousand companies to look at and there is data from those thousand companies that is public and generated, I can use AI to tell me which 50 I should look at. Right, that, that is a very good use of the AI model. And I would suspect that some people might already do that. And most of us will be doing that in a few years. The final decision of like, I'm going to invest in covariant with Peter Chen and Peter Abiel, I think that that's a little too complex. There are too many, you know, I'll just call them for lack of a better word, human components to that decision. Uh, you know, is Peter Chen a good leader? That's a toughie for a deep learning system to figure out. So I think that decision, I'm safe to say during my professional career, I'm okay. But we will all use some form of AI in our job in investment decision-making or in the investment process for sure within the next five years. So Mike, as an investor who of course invents, invests in a lot of spaces, but also very much in, in AI, what do you see the path for 
where AI is going to be in the next maybe two years, three years, and from there, five to 10 years, and especially as it gets commercialized. Yeah. You know, Peter, I think it's going to be in a lot of different use cases and a lot of different places that we can't imagine today. The way I would give you a mental model to think about it is these mobile phones, iPhones, launched in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. We can't imagine life without them today. And they have expanded their use cases into all sorts of things, how we get our food, how we move around, how we meditate, how we communicate, how we get our news. It's permeated almost every aspect of our lives. And I think if we were to have this conversation five or 10 years from now, I think we're going to find AI all over the place, whether it's recommending what I want, whether it's dialoguing with me, whether it's solving a problem, if it's picking stocks for me, uh, whether it's driving my car, you know, whether it's bringing my clothing to me that I purchased yesterday, whether it's writing my essays for me, or all sorts of other things, but it's going to be all over the place. And uh, there will be some really big wins that come out of that. You know, for example, if, if you think about how much money people spend on drivers, and if some portion of that market turns into self-driving cars, it's going to be enormous. And if you think about the wages that people get paid in, in factories or in, in, in warehouses, and that becomes robots, that's enormous. So there's going to be a lot of big wins staged in different times. And, you know, we might find a Snapchat in there somewhere. Uh, we might find a DoorDash, all based on AI that we didn't know about. So I can't tell you when the payoff is going to be. For many companies, the payoff already is ex existing in some ways. But I do think it's going to permeate so many, so much of our lives that we will get to a point where we cannot imagine life that's not empowered by AI. That's so interesting. And I definitely agree with that. It seems like it, it's, it's coming into play in everything we do already in, in limited ways, and it, it's only becoming more capable. Now, when you hit upon the notion of, of payoff in some sense of companies that become worth a lot of money in some sense as a consequence, it seems what's really interesting. I mean, you lived through the, the very beginning. You were part of the very beginning of the internet boom. And what we saw at the time is, you know, new companies that are now our, well, the biggest companies in the world, uh, Google, Amazon, th those companies are so much bigger also than any company has, has been in the past, right? If you, if you look at it, it used to be oil companies, oil and gas companies used to be the biggest companies, as I understand it. And, and then, but they were worth not nearly as much as these internet companies are worth today. I'm kind of curious, do you see another, like today the biggest companies are one to two trillion. Do you imagine, you know, there could be like $20 trillion companies? Is, I mean, is the whole thing going to grow as a whole? Yeah. I mean, obviously uh, uh, it'd be interesting to see what Standard Oil would be worth at the time relative to the size of the market and current dollars and so forth. But, you know, the reason why oil companies were worth so much back in those days is because they controlled the most important resource of the time, which was energy. I think that these businesses that we talked about, Apple, Amazon, Google, et cetera, control the most important resource of our, our time, which is information. And so I think that this journey of information being the most valuable resource we have, 
is a journey that will last many decades, and we are a decade into it. The amazing thing about information is unlike oil, which is a physical substance that you know involves moving around and sticking into cars and factories and so forth, it's bits. Information is ones and zeros, moves around very easily by nature, more global, it's more flexible and fungible. And so is it conceivable that this scarce resource could create companies that in retrospect compare more favorably to the oil companies of the past? I think 100%. Could Amazon be a $20 trillion company? You know, maybe, I, I don't know. It all depends on how well run it is. It's possible, but it's by no means guaranteed. And it'll depend a lot. You know, the interesting thing about all these amazing companies, Amazon, Apple, Google, is they've had leadership transition and none of them are led anymore by the individuals who created them. And the question is, will they be able to continue on the same journey with different kinds of leadership? And that'll be a great test and it'll be very interesting. Now, one thing I'm actually really curious about, Mike, that uh, hits upon some things you talked about earlier, actually, is as we look at the AI landscape as an overall trend, clearly one trend is that things are becoming more, more capable. But another trend is that a lot of really large models are being trained today, right? You look at OpenAI's language models cost several million dollars to, to train the model once. Google trains similar models. And so there's something interesting happening there in some sense where somehow maybe there, there could be, maybe not, I'm really curious what you think, but there could be a shift a bit from where it was a all about who has the AI innovation, the AI ideas, of course, tied to products that you can build, otherwise it doesn't do anything, to who has the capital to also train the models and, and maybe capital becoming a more kind of critical resource within companies that do things with AI. And I'm really curious about your thinking on that. Yeah, that's a really interesting question right now. You know, the, the obvious outcome of some of the things that are important in AI, like capital and data, would lead you to the conclusion that it's not a game for startups, right? Because, you know, Amazon and Google have Facebook, Apple, they have way more money than OpenAI has and ever will because they're for-profit businesses. They have uh, way more data than anybody else has because we all use the products all the time. So if you go down that logical path, then I don't know what, what I'm doing here because it's kind of sort of a waste of time to be a VC in the AI space. I, I think there's a few nuances which might put a fly in the ointment there. First, I think we our industry in general has been very good at figuring out how to harness larger amounts of compute load in cheaper form factors over time. So while training a large language model, like a 300 billion parameter model on the internet is today a very, very, very expensive task. You know, we are inventing technology that will make it not such a big deal in five years, right? And the interesting thing about these large language models is they're largely trained on the internet, which is not a proprietary data set. So if you can just figure out if, you know, and a lot of you know, people are working on PPUs and NVIDIA is working on their GPUs, and then there's all these company companies that are building next generation processors. And those are first generation in the relative scheme of things. So I think the cost of training is on a relative basis is gonna come down and the data set's not proprietary. 
So I actually think that, you know, other companies will be able to harness the power of large models. Point number one. The second piece is that I actually think that there's a lot of proprietary data in the world, which is not available on the internet, which will serve as an advantage to those who have access to it. So if I am able to have better proprietary data, and I might have actually a less efficient model, maybe my model is only 20 billion parameters instead of 300 billion, but I have a better data set because I have private data, my model will probably work better than the large language model for some time or maybe forever if the data is good enough. So I think the interesting part to this equation is it's not enough. A, large models will get commoditized over time. And B, it's actually, it's, it's in the data, stupid. Like the, 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 it's all about what data do you train it on. And the advantage that you have is the data you have, the, the proprietary data you have rather than the internet at large, because that is by definition public. So it's a long winded way to say of saying it, but I, I think there are pathways there for young companies that are not Google and Amazon to make inroads, even using these very large models. Well, that's exciting. I mean, it seems like new companies always faster innovation. So it, hopefully that's indeed true. Hope so. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm doing with this. Now, the other kind of new thing in the space, not really new, um, but kind of new is in the last year has been a lot of SPACs, a new way of, a new way of companies going public. And I just saw last week or, or the week before that Aurora might be considering going public with a SPAC. What are these SPACs? Why, why is that a way to go public now compared to a traditional, let's say, IPO? Yeah, SPACs are these instruments would have, which have come and gone a few times uh, in the last 20 years. You know, for the people in the audience that aren't familiar with them, basically you create an empty container of a company, you put it in the public market, you raise a bunch of money with it, and then that container buys a real operating company that's private, and therefore that private company is now publicly traded. So that it's a shortcut, if you will, to a traditional IPO. My general belief system on these SPACs is that if you have a really good business, you don't need to worry about a SPAC. You're just gonna build your business, take your company public in a traditional IPO or a direct listing, but stay on track. There's a lot of businesses that are a little subscale, uh, a little bit speculative that are going public with SPACs. As an investor, I would be very careful about those. There's a reason that a business wasn't able to go public normally it's probably because it's not quite as good a business. There are, however, a small set of cases where a, there's an interesting business that has a very long development cycle. And we've seen this in the life sciences sector for drug discovery, for example. There are companies who are in the midst of a process of drug discovery that go public to have the capital to continue that journey. And interestingly, because SPACs are available and investors are interested, there can be businesses today which get funded that need a lot of capital, but that they are not ready for prime time yet. And there's been people in the electric vehicle space. There's been VTOLs, like these next generation helicopter companies. There's been a lot of companies that have kind of utilized it. And I think for that instrument, it makes sense. Investors need to be very thoughtful in investing and understanding that this is risky and it could or could not work out. But that is a good way to raise a lot of capital, more capital than might be available in the private markets for a company to continue on to its journey of developing a technology that may not be ready yet. Now, 
Is my understanding correct that once a company goes public through a SPAC, it's public just the same way any other company is public? Once it's happened, there is no difference. So you become part of all the public scrutiny. I mean, regulatory scrutiny, everything that comes with being public, including, I mean, possibly the things, I mean, Tesla struggled with, with, you know, people shorting the company and so forth. I mean, there seems like a lot, a lot of extra headaches could come your way. All true. I think that's an ex- exact characterization of the concerns. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about a normal company is that every quarter you can post your results and people can look at it and go like, yep, things are going well, progress is being made. Nope, not so well. For a company that doesn't yet have a product, it's a little trickier because how do you really evaluate such a company? The disclosure system that we have around publicly traded companies generally focuses on financials. But you know, if you don't have revenue, then the only thing you're looking at is expenses. And it's very hard for an investor to assess that. So these companies that do go public will be subject to a tricky public life. So in some cases, it makes sense because while there's those negatives, there is the positive of being able to raise a lot of money. In many cases, it doesn't make sense. Seems like key would be typically to have a very clear vision. I mean, otherwise, it's just going to be a nightmare if people don't understand your vision for the future and how this, this will all come together. Yeah, I would think that you have to have a clear vision on what you're doing, an ability to dialogue with the public markets on specific milestones, and when do you think you're going to hit them realistically. And you need to present a vision that convinces the investor that you're working in a very large market segment, right? Because you're raising all this capital, well, the end market is going to have to be quite big for that to be true. There's this closing question I'd like to ask you, which is, as one of the most reputed investors, what is your advice for new entrepreneurs, people contemplating starting a company or just in the process of having started their company? What would be your advice? I would have a few key points of advice. My first one is don't just start a company for the sake of starting it but find something that you're passionate about and pursue it. Most startup journeys have bumped in them. Even the absolute best outcomes have bumped in them. And the thing that allows you to persist and continue to drive through those difficult moments is your passion for what you're working on. So all too often, I see young entrepreneurs come and say, well, I'm going to do a startup. I'm researching areas that I might do a startup in and this one seems like it has less competition in it. So we'll do that. And I'm like, don't, don't do that. Find something you're passionate about. And then test your passion in a market test. The second mistake often people make is I'm super passionate about this. It's super cool. I really want to work on this. But what they're working on isn't the right time in the market. It doesn't have a commercial application that's relevant and so on and so forth. So then your second test is, is the, does this thing that I have passion in make sense in the market within a realistic timeframe that I operate in. And then the last thing that I would say is, you know, we end up being investors an average of eight years. That's our average, which means that as an entrepreneur, as a founder, you're probably thinking about even a longer journey. It's a decade of your life, right? And if you're going to do that thing for a decade, A, be ready for that journey because it really is that long. And B, make sure you really love it because the last thing you want to do is find out seven years into it that you didn't really like the thing that you were working on. So those are my three big pieces of advice. All of those involve dealing with people. 
because you find your passion by interacting with people that are in that field, right? You market test your, your passion by people that are in that field. And the best way to learn about the entrepreneurial journey that's so long is to talk to people like you who are in it and to learn the feeling of being involved in something that long. Because, you know, if you're 23 years old, you've, you've never worked on anything for 10 years. You haven't even been an adult for 10 years. So, so, you know, ask questions like, what is it like? What does it feel like? What happened? And those are the things that I'd sort of recommend. So, you know, everything is built around people, but it's those three steps. I think those three realizations, I think. Well, thank you, Mike. I think this, this was just a really fun conversation. Learned, learned so much. Thank you for joining us. Peter, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's been a privilege to work with you over the last couple of years. I know we have many more to come because as I said, it's going to be eight more. So we'll have many more of these, but you know, thank you. And, and I'm, I'm honored to be on this podcast with you with some of the most amazing people. So please keep up the good work. We are dropping new interviews every week. So subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.